According to researchers in China, an ancient Chinese manuscript made available to the public in 2011 describes in detail a mysterious event that took place nearly 500 years ago, an alien abduction. The text, written in 1528, describes a mysterious star which crossed the sky from east to west, and this mysterious star descended in the vicinity of a small village near the mountains. One of the inhabitants of the village, intrigued by the mysterious star that had landed, approached the object, describing it as being dish-shaped and as big as a house, covered in brilliant colors, unlike anything he had ever seen in his lifetime. And he fainted. He woke up in a cold, strange place that was illuminated by a mysterious red hue, and even though he could still see the sun, the moon, and the stars, there were no buildings or people near him, only mysterious creatures that had round faces and three eyes instead of two. According to the ancient abductee, the mysterious beings wore strange-looking clothing and spoke a language he could not understand. The description of the mysterious UFO abduction was found in a manuscript collection gifted to China's cultural ministry. After experts verified the manuscript, a book was published by the ministry. In the book is the journal of an ancestor in the Ming Dynasty around 500 years ago. The text that speaks about the abduction can be found in one page of over 500 pages that describe several things among them medicine, music, martial arts, and other historic events. So after he regained his consciousness, he found himself back in his home, but the stonemason that had been abducted found out that during the absence, that seemed to have passed quickly for him, mind you, he had actually been gone for a year. The person who wrote about this incredible story went to visit the stonemason who was abducted and missing for that year. The author wrote that after meeting the abductee, he saw a red scar on the man's chest and swore that the account was authentic. So as we can see, UFO sightings and abductions have been present on Earth for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. There was even a Buddhist monk de that described a UFO encounter. At the end of the great prayer meeting, I climbed the Da Lao Peak, where I paid reverence to the wisdom lamps said to appear there. I saw nothing the first night, but on the second I saw a great ball of light flying from the northern to the central peak, where it came down, splitting a short while later into over ten balls of different sizes. The same night I saw on the central peak three balls of light flying up and down in the air, and on the northern peak four balls of light, which varied in size. Great balls of fire! Oh, I just could not resist. And welcome to this week's Pinky Pod. How are you doing out there? And I just read that from ancient-code.com because, yeah, I think maybe we'll do some alien stuff. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Aliens, alien abduction stuff, not gonna lie, is like one thing that can really creep me out. <laughs> I do think that there's, in so many vast galaxies, there has to be something. And the fact that they're always coming here to do terrible things to us is, yeah, definitely creepy, right? I grew up with that, except for E.T. So, you know, it's kind of creepy. And then whenever people talk about it, it's always, oh, they're, they're probing us and doing all of these things to us. Like, what the hell, right? Anyway. Before I carry on with any alien stories, however, for those who listened last week, I left you a little tiny bit of a cliffhanger uh, concerning a supposedly cursed statue, the Woman of Lem. If you don't know what I'm talking about, well, I'm not your cliff notes. Go listen. Go listen. It's a fun episode about curses. Very quickly, there's this statue, the Cypriot statue found in Cyprus that supposedly killed a whole bunch of people and a museum curator, and it was supposedly in the Royal Scottish Museum, blah, blah, blah. This is a very good illustration, too, though, of what happens even more so now and quicker and easier and probably even worse uh, with the Internet is how 
something gets totally blown out of proportion or misquoted and it grows and grows and becomes a giant legend which is full of crap. So after getting a response on Twitter, I was then directed to email people at the museum and then, you know, find the appropriate person in the appropriate uh, collections area. Because, again, this statue is supposedly at the National Scottish Museum. Oh, and what I was talking about, how legends grow. It's like every website you would look up when you Google Woman of Lem, they pretty much all repeat each other which I've noticed that with other things before. And so I always try to go deeper because I'm like, well, that's kind of suspicious. There's got to be more. But they just kept having the same thing over and over. Miss Doctor, Dr. Margaret Maitland, who's the principal curator of the ancient Mediterranean Department of World Cultures at National Museums of Scotland, has solved this mystery. Dear S. Wright, thank you very much for your inquiry and your interest in our collections. Unfortunately, the accounts circulating on the internet about the Woman from Lem or Women of Lem statuette are completely fabricated and began in early 2014. We do not have the statue in our collection and never have. The Lemba Lady, as it was originally termed, was excavated in the late 1970s at the site of Lemba near Paphos in western Cyprus and has always been considered the property of the Cypriot government. I'm going to break in here on her, this is her email to me, and say that I thought that that was really weird. Like, why would Scotland have it and not Cyprus? That made no sense to me unless they were just trying to fit that in with the curse and nobody wanted it. And I think I probably even mentioned that in my episode that it didn't make any sense to me. So this makes a lot more sense. So where was I? It is in the collection of the Cyprus Museum in Nicosia, where it remains today. Carved out of limestone, it dates to circa 3000 BC and relates to other cruciform style statuettes of the Chalcolithic period. The statue has never been owned by any private individuals, nor did it ever belong to the Royal Scottish Museum, which officially became National Museums of Scotland in 1985. Some confusion may have arisen because it was displayed at the museum here in Edinburgh in a temporary exhibition called Aphrodite's Island in 1988. It's published on a 50 on page 50 of the catalog by Elizabeth Goring, titled A Mischievous Pastime, Digging in Cyprus in the 19th Century. And there's a catalog of the exhibition, Aphrodite's, Aphrodite, Aphrodite, depends who you are, Aphrodite's Island, Art and Archaeology of Ancient Cyprus, held in the Royal Museum of Scotland. Now that's just a, a pamphlet, by the way. Both the curator and the excavators survived their interactions with the figurine and there were no problems during the display here. She also provided links where you can see that it is belongs to the Cyprus Museum. There's also a publication that shows photographs of the excavation proving where it was found. And then you can go to the Cyprus Museum website. And there you have it. Thank you, doctor. So... I also thought that was kind of weird. I don't know if I mentioned it on the episode that like, what do you mean there's no records of the excavation? Like if the statue does actually exist and it has been compared to other similar statues, that would have been either a sanctioned archeological dig that of course there would be records or yeah, some private person dug it up and didn't tell anybody. But as we can see, it's bullshit. The Lady of Lemda has been um, exonerated. She's been exonerated. She did not do any of these things. And also, um, I like that it's the uh, Aphrodite's Island because uh, some other things I looked up about the statues, some people think she might be related to Aphrodite. Uh, if you've ever seen any other goddess statues, a lot of them are very curvy like that, you know, could be fertility. You've probably heard of the Venus of Wallendorf. That's a very famous one. They call these cruciform because it does kind of make a cross. You could, you could draw a cross in it, if you know what I mean. But it's very clearly super hourglass. I think she's very, I like her. 
I mean, I looked at it and go, how is that cursed? I mean, I guess I could see how she could lure you in because, uh, you know, it makes me just want to pick her up and stroke her and cuddle like, oh, you're so cool. And in some of my pictures, I'll, pu I'll publish more. Uh, pinky underscore podcast, Instagram, pod pinky, Twitter. She does have a little face that I don't think showed in all of the pictures. So I'll put up some better photographs, but there you have it. Vindicated is the word I wanted earlier. We have vindication. She ain't been cursed nobody. And she's beautiful. And I like her very much. And so now you know. Well then, that's taken care of. Mystery solved. But so as not to totally disenchant you and disappoint you. And as, as far as I'm concerned, we are now in the countdown to Halloween. It's September 2nd as I record this. Close enough. My favorite time of year. I love autumn and all that. Let's start doing some more creepy. And as I already said, alien abductions to me are pretty freaking creepy. And I will not debunk them. Well, I don't think I'll be able to anyway. Oh, and before I forget, one more thing I wanted to note is if you Google Lady Lemda or Lady of Lemda, you get all of the factual articles about her so isn't that funny how just the slightest switch of a phrase will get you something completely different because when you google woman of limb you get all the other the cursed stuff and i also want to say that uh, dr margaret was very polite considering she's probably been asked this a few times <laughs> And probably, I like to imagine them going, oh, oh, here we go again. Was there another episode about this or something? Or did some blogger, did some blogger do another story? Because here I am answering this. But so thank you. Thank you very much. So I will have links to the true story, Lady of Lem. And I just love her. And I think I need to make my own version in clay. Alrighty then. December 8th, 1992. Houston. Texas. People unknown to each other shared an experience. The thing they had in common was that they had attended a meeting of alien abductees on this very night. It was an event organized by ex-CIA officer turned UFO researcher Daryl Sims. The claim, eight Houston residents were abducted on this night from different locations. The stories were the same. That of entering a strange light and then a small craft, which in turn took them to a larger craft outside of Earth's orbit. Now, apparently they all had long histories of abductions, which I assume is why they were at that meeting. And after they discovered that they had this abduction in common, apparently they were abducted again. And as they all recalled, implants were removed from their noses. So was this a lengthy time of experiment, uh, experiments on the same group of people? Did the next abduction happen because they spoke about it and then they all came to know each other? Who knows? But let's back up a little bit, shall we? Who is Daryl Sims? Well, Daryl Sims is a controversial person, even within the UFO community. And I am getting this directly from ufoinsight.com. He is, I quote, adept at the recovery of alien implants with a rising catalog of apparently genuine unknown materials, unquote. However, many others are highly critical of his methods and claims. Some use his CIA background against him with insinuations of disinformation. Perhaps more damaging is that a lot of people just think he's an outright charlatan. And I don't think that's just skeptics, y'all. So in the summer of 1992, Sims was the chief abductions investigator for Houston UFO, as I like to call them, network. Or HUFON. No, really, H-U-F-O-N. HUFON. He investigated the cases of a number of abductees in the Houston area. As part of, as part of his investigations, 
he would implement plans to establish communications with the intelligence behind the abductions. So he was trying to contact the aliens, you guys. So he would end up using several abductees who had long histories of abductions. Hypnotic suggestions were placed into their subconscious. His plan was for these suggestions to kick in should an abduction happen again. And the abductee, though they might not realize it, would ask questions and take in more detail of their surroundings, at least in theory. So in case that's not clear, because I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, that just explains everything podcast over. His idea, in theory, was to make them aware enough of what was happening while they were being abducted that they would try to find out more information while they were there. Not to plant abduction scenarios in their head, but to be like, ask the aliens, look around, see what's going on, gather information. In theory. In November 1992, one of Sims' patients suffered an abduction. They call the subject DS92007PH. He had also undergone Sims' hypnotic hypnotic suggestion. Speaking of aliens, I think they don't want me to put this out here because they have started really early on abducting my tongue. The hypnotic suggestion treatment. And supposedly this was successful because the subject managed to keep a clear memory for a prolonged amount of time into the incident. According to reports, this subject was able to communicate with her abductors, although they didn't reveal anything of consequence. Of course not. They began to zap her to maintain control. The more time in their presence the subject began to feel herself losing mental control. So during her hypnosis hypnosis session, she would suddenly blurt out, we know what you're doing, we know about, and then she would be cut off as if her outburst had provoked her abductors to silence her. Hmm. So is there evidence of a clandestine mass abduction? Well, the following month, For all the criticism of his methods, Sims captured some remarkable results, so they say. In the days following the December 8th, 1992 claim, he noticed that several of his patients had recently suffered abductions. More specifically, they were all abducted on the same night and by their recollections, the same abductors. So now we get into the meat of it. They call uh, these next episodes post-abduction syndrome, PAS. So after suffering episodes of that, the abductees would then independently give their accounts to Sims. And the symptoms were often sudden onset of intense dreams of an abduction, as well as nosebleeds and pains in the nasal nasal cavities. I am really having trouble... I don't know if I should disclose this, but I had recorded almost an entirely different episode and kept restarting and kept stopping and then realized it was utter shit. Totally changed subjects, started over, and now I can't talk. Not that I was probably speaking that well in the other one. So now you know. Bing! The more you know. Nasal cavities! Where were we? So none of these abductees were in contact with each other at this point, but their accounts were so similar that they were nearly identical. They, they give them all letters and numbers here, and this will come into play later because I dug up his actual report. So one abductee, DS92009LT, would awaken to intense irritation in her eyes on the mor- one morning in mid-December. After rubbing it, she noticed a small dot fall out that she thought was an implant. Another abductee, DS92002DM, also experienced nosebleeds and signs of PAS, PAS. Each would then contact Sims, who would regress them through hypnosis, which he's not the only one who does that. I've, I've heard of that before. The details they gave were repeated almost exactly by several other abductees in the oncoming weeks. Subject DS92002DM was first regressed in hypnosis on December 10th. He would awake to find several strange creatures in his room. 
and then they supposedly moved to his bed and pulled something from his nose. Then they left and he fell back to sleep. Sims then regressed DS92002 DM back to two days before the night of the 8th, so I guess the 6th, and the revelations were mind-blowing. And here they are. So, again, the subject was asleep when a bright flash woke him. There was no sound, so he figured it couldn't be a thunderstorm. And then he noticed a small gray alien in the room. It was wearing a harness or utility belt. I'm just quoting. A voice entered his head from the alien, so telepathically, that told him to follow him outside. So the subject did, and that's when he saw a bright blue light shining at a spot on the ground outside his home. He stepped into this light, and then he was in a, instantly in a large round room. Again, the creature spoke into his mind and told him to take off his clothes. He did so and then followed the creature down a series of corridors. He wasn't sure how they moved through the corridors. He just remembered walking at times and most of the journey was made by, quote, a means unknown. In one room, other alien creatures were present and were conducting physical and conducted a physical examination of him. He then noticed that there was another human in the room. This other person began to ask questions of him. How did he know of previous abductions? Perhaps the most bizarre is how did abductees find each other and why would they want to meet? So I guess these were questions. A model of the human brain was presented to DS92002DM. He was asked to show where the subconscious mind is located. As these questions came, he would get bizarre visions of another abductee which were, who was unknown to him, but they apparently match Sims files of a patient DS92007PH. He believed this other abductee was asked the same questions as him. The next thing he knew, the other human was no longer there and he was moving into another room. So the next room was also large and round, but the lighting, the layout, and the furnishings were different. Several other alien creatures entered this room, as well as the gray aliens and the, quote, human, were two tall brown aliens. Questions filled his mind about the subconscious part of the human brain. He also continued to receive visions of other abductees. They were all in the same room, naked, yet seemingly unaware of each other, as if in a trance-like state. And he recalled his feelings that the abductors were trying to access their minds for information. Now, despite him not knowing how he understood, he recalled a debate between these aliens as to whether the experiment should continue or if it was compromised. As he was watching the scene unfold and the visions of the other abductees continued, he suddenly thought to himself, the other abductees don't know that the others are here. At this point, a human walked over to him and as if picking up on the thoughts and took hold of his hands. They see, this seemed to block any other activity that the subject was picking up on. There was another intriguing point, however. According to this, when he was in hypnosis, he was asked what he knew of Project Prometheus, to which his reply was nothing. Eleven years later, NASA would launch Project Prometheus, which would tackle nuclear-powered space propulsion. The naming of the project is most likely a coincidence, and given that nuclear propulsion would, in theory at least, give us the capability for long-term space flight, it is an interesting detail. There were also several reports of a large room, very much like a museum, that had examples of numerous animals and humans from across the ages. The humans were from cultures across the globe and throughout time. What is chilling, perhaps, is that the impressions of the witnesses were that these examples were not models and they were not dead. They thought that they were alive and in suspended animation. This is something that many other abductees have spoken of before. There's Betty Andresen, who I'm thinking of covering her as well. In fact, I have her name on my notepad here before I even got to this part. 
And she had also described a museum, almost exactly the same way as the Houston people do. So the question is, does this suggest a long-term incomprehensible experiment by ETs? Do the experiments only involve a few, or is it widespread? Are they for the benefit of humanity or something else? The main researcher at the heart of it, Daryl Sims, might be easy to dismiss if it weren't for glaring similarities to many other cases that he has nothing to do with, apparently. There's a video of him on this ufosite.com. If you looked up multiple alien abduction, Houston, 1992, uh, it looks like, a, unless he still dresses this way, it looks very 70s. <laughs> Maybe it's 90s, but there's a video of him. You can find him um, speaking about his theories and this case. Oh, I, I'm very, uh, I like this, by the way. I want to make note of what this website says at the bottom. Fact-checking disclaimer. The stories, accounts, and discussions in this article are not always based on proven facts and may go against currently accepted science and common beliefs. The details included in the article are based on the reports and accounts available to us as provided by witnesses and documentation. We do not aim to prove nor disprove any of the theories, cases, or reports. You should read this article with an open mind and come to a conclusion yourself. Our model always is, you make up your own mind. Read more about how we fact check content here. So that's pretty cool that they actually have a disclaimer. Shall we find out how they fact check? All of our articles are crafted from accounts, reports, and third-party documents made available to us. We never agree nor disagree with the data provided. Okay, we already say that. While the term fact-checked is somewhat of an impossible statement in this field and the topics we cover, all of the data we publish is thoroughly vetted in-house by our experts and sometimes third parties who are more knowledgeable on certain stories and in these fields. Some of the claims or accounts may seem far-fetched and extreme. We do not agree nor disagree with these reports. We simply provide our opinion on them and provide them to the reader. We fact-check these reports as much as we are able to and debunk or prove some of the theories presented. Our experts have been writing in these fields for many decades, even before the public internet was available. <laughs> Kudos to you, UFOinsight.com. I will shout you out, I'm sure, other times if I keep doing these subjects. Now, I said that I had found, what's his name? Daryl Sims. But I see this was written by somebody else. But it is for... It's courtesy of the Hufan Report. So I think this is just the person who gathered it. The Mass Abduction Event of December 8, 1992 by Dale Musser. The file is courtesy of Hufan Report, the newsletter of Houston UFO Network. There's even a phone number. Note in the following report, the term aliens is used generically to denote the abducting entities and does not presuppose an extraterrestrial origin. So in the late summer of 1992, Daryl Sims, chief abductions investigator for Hufan, implemented a plan to establish communications with alien abductors. This was to be accomplished by means of hypnotic suggestions implanted in the subconscious minds of several subjects with multiple abductions history. We covered that. In November of 1992, DS92007PH was abducted. They maintained conscious memory for a fair amount of time into the abductions before the aliens were able to zap them. So there we go. We covered her. Starting December 8, 1992, just prior to the Hufan meeting, alien abductions, working with abductees, so that's the event they all had attended that night, several of the subjects on the panel were re-abducted. Just prior. Now this says just prior to the meeting. Hmm. These abductions were not realized at the time, but over the next few days, many of the abductees began suffering post-abduction syndrome. At this time, they were not in communication with each other. Subject DS92002DM reported that he had experienced a dream or possible flashback of an earlier abduction. When he began having PAS and other physical manifestations, it became obvious to him that abduction had taken place. They list three other subjects who also reported dreams 
with possible abduction signs, and they reported nosebleeds and or sinus pains. December 10th, at the monthly WHO Fund meeting, a number of abductees were questioned by the audience about their experiences. Most of them were uncomfortable and felt that they should not be talking about it, but the meeting went well. Friday morning, December 11th, many of the abductees who had been on, the, and many had been on the panel on the night before, awoke to find that they had nosebleeds during the night. Almost all had sinus pains, and within a day or two, they almost all had head colds and flu-like symptoms. Then we have one who awoke on the 11th with an irritation in the eye. We covered that. Uh, it was about the size of a mustard seed, the little dot that fell out. They called Daryl Sims, and they gave him the object. This object has been photographed and is undergoing analysis. Now remember, this is like 1992. The object appears to be made out of a flesh-colored plastic. It is somewhat egg-shaped and is hollow inside. The same day, someone else awoke to discover he had a nosebleed, his first in over 20 years. He also called Daryl Sims to make arrangements for a hypnosis session. December 20th, he was regressed hypnotically to his latest encounter with aliens. And that apparently occurred on December 10th, the night of the Hufan meeting, the second meeting. He was awakened by aliens in his bedroom, who in a very quick procedure removed a nasal implant, and then they left. Later, under hypnosis, a number of other abductees reported similar events. And then they talk about the December 8th one that I've already read to you. Go outside, take off your clothes, da-da-da, go into the rooms. Several other um, aliens were present, etc. There's a little bit of extra detail here. A debate. In, okay, so after the debate, accusations were made. So I guess this is the debate a little bit. Accusations were made about improper procedures being followed by the Greys and the Browns. At one point... DS92002DM sensed or saw the other abductees as they were being accessed by the aliens, and he had the thought that the other, okay, didn't know that they were there. So I guess the whole debate was improper procedures. It was at this point when one of Daryl Sims' hypnotic suggestions activated, <laughs> which we are unable to report at this time as further investigation experimentations are continuing. So one of the more interesting aspects of the case is about the pro uh, Project Prometheus. So this is all in here. As the meeting seemed to be ending, and I guess we're still in the abduction here, the human asked the subject what he would like to do, to which the subject responded that he would like to go with them, which even this abductee finds that very bizarre that he would say that. The subject was also told that this was impossible because he was contaminated. The human then took him into a side room where he was shown a strange sort of chart or diagram which he did not understand, and he had never seen anything like it. He was then led by two browns through several other rooms to another examination room laboratory where a nasal implant was placed in his nostril, and apparently this is the one that was later removed. He was then given his pajamas, told to dress, and returned home. All three, there are three subjects that have independently described the room, its appearance, and the individuals. They're all similar, and the rooms match. Interesting to note that all of the abductees in the group room experiences perceived events differently, although parallel. One believed she had died and was with her dead brother who had strange eyes. One thought she was with God, whose face she couldn't see because of a fog that only allowed her to see his shape. All of the individuals reported themselves and others in the room being nude. One abductee who felt hungry was told they would be fed and was handed silverware as though they were actually about to be served food. She was told to look at the silverware under hypnosis, but it was not silverware at all, some strange object she couldn't identify. Each of the abductees in the group room experience seemed to be in a drugged or hallucinative state. This condition seemed to alleviate when they were taken to another room for the examinations and nasal and ocular implants. Other abductees have also reported supporting evidence and experiences. The number of abductees involved in this event is not known for sure. 
So this pretty much finishes up with, we do not know the outcome of these events. We hope that it may lead to a breakthrough in communication, improvement in relationship with the aliens, and an end to the abductions and experimentation on unwilling subject. As I had Googled uh, more and more of this, though, I, I didn't immediately come across more, you know, like they said, oh, it can't be reported because we're still investigating. And I didn't really come across anything. There is a Coast to Coast AM, which you may have heard of. There used to be Art Bell once upon a time. And Daryl Sims, Alien Implant Collection. There are photos, uh, and he was on Coast to Coast May 8th, 2019, so he's still around. I will share these photos. On my, again, going to keep plugging the Instagram if you want to see this weird shit, this cool weird shit, this creepy shit. Uh, pinky underscore podcast. So there's one here where he shows uh, he's redacted the person's name and stuff. I respect that, you know, protect their identity. So a left foot, and it says... Soft tissue swelling is noted in the region of the fifth toe. Bony structures are intact with no fracture or dislocation. There is no opaque foreign object identified in the lateral aspect of the foot. Three metal clips are noted in the soft tissues due to previous surgery. But it also says right under there that Patricia has three implants in her feet. Here's what the objects look like in the biological cocoon. Oh, and he's very excited. So, okay, there's a bunch of pictures here, and I can't really, I can't really explain these two in any way that'll make sense. I think this goes along with the podcast that he was on or the radio program. So, again, come to my Instagram, and I will also put this in the show notes. Um, they claim that the objects are meteoric in origin, and they show him holding. They're very tiny. They show him holding, it would look like big three, three big round dots, but they're, those are actually quote unquote petri dishes, if you will, not really, but the specimen holders. And they're also showing that they had come up with eight gold spheres ejected from the nasal passage of a little girl. So two of them came from a little girl. So these look like BBs. Literally, they look like BBs. They have pictures from New Delhi, India, 2015. They think it's a, an implant in someone's clavicle. You know, looking at it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't look like anything to me. It really doesn't look like anything. I just don't even know what it is. Here is the photograph, though, of Houston, Texas, 1992, the ocular implant. It does look like a little itty-bitty teeny tiny cracked egg. It's, Yeah. There's a doctor who claims that one like this is still attached to the retina of the patient and Sims is investigating. And this is as of 2019. So I guess this is still going on. You really need to see this webpage. He's got a whole collection. Quote, this is my collection of implants, real and fake, fluorescence left by the alien and some Bigfoot. Oh, I guess he's branching out into Bigfoot. Most exciting are two pieces of UFO related material. So he he's I where's his Bigfoot evidence? I didn't know we were suddenly taking that swerve. Interesting guy, hey. Eh? So I'm thinking that we'll get into Sims a little more, but first, since they uh, made such nice claims about their fact checking, I'm gonna stick here with ufoinsight.com and we'll now get into Betty Andreasen, who I had meant to look up anyway. I'd already had the notes, like I said. Although not the first high-profile claim of alien abduction, the extraordinary case of Betty Andresen is considered by many one of the most important and unique, not the least of which because the incidents stretch out over decades and share details with many other cases over the years. Following her reports to MUFON of partial memories, she would work with Dr. Raymond Fowler using hypnotic regression to unlock a lifetime of abduction experiences. These sessions took place in phases and would last from the late 70s into the mid-90s. The case is also intriguing as it blurs heavily into such territory as faith and perception. It's perhaps due to Betty's determination to make sense of the bizarre events that appear to have been folding most of her life. Although it would prove not to be the first encounter, the incident that would spark enough memory to have her look at the events again took place at her home in the northeast of the United States over 
50 years ago. And it's MUFO because it's Massachusetts. On the evening of January 25th, 1967, a little after 6.30 p.m., Betty Andresen, along with her parents and seven children, were at their Massachusetts home in South Ashburnham. Suddenly, a flickering of the lights captured everyone's attention before absolute darkness took hold around them. Within a matter of seconds, a strange glow shined through the windows from outside. It would turn a warm orange color as it illuminated the inside of the property. She would later describe the scene as if someone had put them into a vacuum, as if, quote, time were standing still. Betty told the children to wait in the living room. She was in the kitchen, along with her father, who had moved towards the window to get a better view. He could make out several humanoid creatures approaching out of the lights. Then he could see one of them right outside the window. It turned to look at him, and upon making eye contact, Betty's father appeared to go into a strange translate state of suspended animation. He would remember nothing more of the encounter. Suddenly, the five humanoids came through the walls and were inside the Andresen's home. Betty would describe this passing through the walls as if they faded in and out of existence. All of those in the house, aside from Betty, were placed into the same kind of suspended animation, like Betty's father. They then asked her to join them outside. Fearing for the safety of her family, however, one of the humanoids had to release one of the children, Becky, from her suspended state so as to prove no harm would come to them. Interestingly, years later, Becky recalled this only through regression. Following the demonstration of her family's safety, Betty agreed to follow these strange creatures. She later explained that she felt compelled to do so. One of the visitors remained behind to guard the house and the remaining members of the Andresen family. She wasn't at all aware of how she did this, but she would float through the solid wood door of the kitchen as she followed her guides. She floated on board an oval-shaped craft, and before she had time to take in her surroundings, she could feel the momentum shift as the craft raced upwards to the sky. Betty described various procedures and examinations taking place before entering a tank of liquid. She was also given a strange liquid to drink that apparently had a tranquilizing effect. The next thing she knew, she found herself floating towards another chamber. A chorus of strange voices met her, telling her of their choosing her to show something important to the world. Following this, Betty found herself back in her home. The humanoids were still there, but now they were systematically placing, placing each family member into their beds. All were still in a trance. Betty watched these events take place, with one of the humanoids stating that they were there to help humanity, but humans would fear them. Betty claimed she was told that these creatures were not bound by time, and also that man is not made of just flesh and blood. It wasn't until a decade later that Betty would begin to recall the events of the evening. And even then, it wasn't until she underwent hypnotic regression under the watch of Dr. Raymond Fowler that everything aside from the strange lights and five creatures came back in full. Her first set of hypnotic regressions took place over a 12-month period between January 1977 and January 1978. So, so get the timeline again. She had her abduction the first time in 1967, but didn't really remember it until 1977. So although she would undergo further sessions with Dr. Fowler that stretched into the 90s, it's the accounts of her first experience that people find most fascinating. Because of supporting, if circumstantial, evidence that leads them credence. For example, Betty claimed the reason her parents were with her was due to her husband being in the hospital following a car crash. Hospital records do show that this was true and show her husband's admittance from mid-January to early March 1967. Furthermore, she recalled there was snow on the ground, but the air felt warmer than it should, and there was fog. Weather records do show that there was mist rising from melting snow due to an increase in temperatures. There was a power failure in the region that evening at the same time Betty recalled the power going out in their home. 
Her father, who was in a trance throughout the episode, could recall a child in a Halloween costume looking through the window. Even records with television schedules would prove their statements of what was on the television prior to the incident proved to be correct. So at least that part of the memory is all correct, right? You know, where we were, what we were doing, like, remember, remember such detail the night. Betty would reveal the other abduction experiences during future sessions with Dr. Fowler. Her first experience apparently happened as far back as 1944 when she was only seven years old. So by this time in 67, she's already much older. I didn't get that at first, but but now we know. Um, real quickly here, real quickly here. Da, da, da. So she, uh, she would have been about 30, 30 years old. She was in a playhouse waiting for a friend when a strange red orb entered the small play space and settled between her eyes. As it did so, her head began to ring out with strange voices telling her that they were watching her. They also claimed they would meet again when she was 12, which they did in 1949. She was walking in a woodland nearby Westminster when a gray creature dressed in a one-piece coverall awash with buttons and symbols stepped out before her. It pressed a button on its coverall and a red orb emerged. The orb, like before, settled on her face between her eyes. And again, her head filled with the strange but now familiar voices. A year later in 1950, an orb-like object would take her on what is arguably one of the most bizarre encounters on record. Once on board, a strange instrument was placed inside her mouth which held down her tongue. She found herself on a bizarre wheel made of a rubber-like substance. The craft entered a body of water she didn't know where and would emerge in an underground base. Betty would recall going through a museum of time with different versions of humans throughout history on show in glass-like containers. Sounds like the Houston one, doesn't it? During this encounter, although she didn't elaborate on how, she was also made to have an out-of-body experience and she entered into a world of light. She described this encounter as feeling at oneness with all things. As the decades were re-explored through her hypnotic sessions, she revealed more and more encounters. On several occasions, she would describe waking from sleep to find strange entities in her bedroom. She would even receive forewarnings of upcoming trying events in her life. For example, 1975. A bedroom visitor informed her that her marriage would end in divorce. It did shortly after. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, shortly after, well, maybe you guys were already having problems and you kind of already had that premonition yourself, right? Right. Two years later, 1977, she was warned that two of her sons would meet an untimely end. A short while later, both were killed in a car accident. Okay, that one's chilling. I totally, because that's not just the divorce. That's like, you shit, they actually died. That That's pretty freaky. She would also undergo several out-of-body experiences. One particular time in 1978, she even experienced a shared encounter with her second husband, Bob. Each found themselves, or at least the essence of themselves, in a large, round, alien facility. There's that large, round thing again. They witnessed a bizarre and advanced operation taking place on three of their family members. So that means that they had all been abducted, right? The last point is interesting because many abduction cases not only reveal a long history in the subject, but often incidents of family members also, you know, sharing encounters. There were also increasing signs of implants inside their bodies. Even more disturbing was evidence of scoop marks. Ew, do you have to call them that? <laughs> Which looks similar to biopsy tests. Test, test. Uh, Fowler, I guess, well, chilling, was chilled by the fact, that, and that's your the guy that's doing the hypnosis, right? The doctor. He discovered these marks on his own arm as well later. Which made him think that whatever had an interested in the uh, Andreasens now were interested in him. There is also a video on this one that cover that covers more of this. So again, I'll give you the site, ufoinsight.com. Now, much of the sessions and her memories, Betty called the entities that visited her angels. 
she was very, you know, she was religious and that might have just been her way of interpreting it. Uh, for example, when she was 24 in 1961, she felt a strange luring from her home into the woods and she encountered a tall, great humanoid in the woodland who she believed was a messenger of the Lord. Although it's not unique, connections to religion or some kind of supreme entity in modern day UFO accounts are rare. And I have to say, not that I'm any big uh, expert on this, but a lot of the ones that I've seen or the famous ones that I've heard of, this is the first time I've ever heard one where they specifically said they were the person being abducted was like they were angels and messengers of the Lord. I'm sure there's a lot of other people that might conjecture that, but specific stories, I hadn't heard that. Uh, uh, UFOinsight.com mentions that they have written about several of them, though, such as Catherine Howard and Sidney Patrick. But encounters that reference a specific god or religion are rarer. They conjecture here that, um, or maybe this did happen, that the assertion that the entities were angel from the Lord would lead many to accuse Andresen of seeking monetary gain. She does apparently have several books on her encounters over the two decades, and she did little to dissuade anyone who might have felt this way. Or, I guess, because of the books. Many who have studied this, though, in depth, disagree. They think that there's more to it than just money-seeking by, by either one of them, the doctor or uh, Betty. UFO cases from antiquity were often perceived to be divine events if you believe they were UFOs, just like I read you that Chinese thing. Uh, if, if you Googled on the internet and, or, well, gee, ancient aliens, because it could literally not be anything other than aliens, though it could literally be 5,000 other things, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, a lot of times they are interpreted as uh, divine signals. We have yet another video after that, and that is Betty's story. So I've told you the stories, but I'm still kind of interested in this uh, Sims guy. Oh, and I'm almost here, but I think that we will quickly try to find a little more biography on him. So the first little updated tidbits I want to tell you about Mr. Daryl Sims is that he is known as the Alien Hunter. That's right, Alien Hunter Daryl Sims thealienhunter.com. He has his own website. These days, even though the stuff I just told you about um, demonstrated that he was hoping to have some sort of contact with aliens or talk to them, I've found a couple of things where apparently he now says, do not attempt to talk to aliens because they may come and injure you. It may lead to bad things. I also just uh, came across a little blurb where he was abducted apparently when he was a child and they messed with his childhood memories and made him think that he saw a clown. You can read about this too also on his very own website, of course. So how about we'll quickly tell you that uh, his first conscious event was apparently the year 1952. I am between three and a half and four years old and lying in my bed at 1005 South K Street in Midland, Texas, which funnily enough, I lived in Midland for a little time in 1987 and I don't recommend it. An AC unit not quite fitted to the windows allows cold night air into the room. There is a name on the cooler unit, but I can't read it yet, so I can't tell what it says. I can't read the name on the brown radio either. My bedroom at the rear of the house has a blanket over the doorway to keep the chill from the rest of the house. The lights are off. And by the way, it would be chilly at night. It's basically a desert. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. My eyes closed. I am lying there quietly awake when I sense something in my room. Somehow, I know I am to keep my eyes closed, but I don't. At this point, I am not afraid that he is there. It is as if I know it and am familiar with his presence, though I have never seen it in the conscious state as I do now. Not afraid, I am stunned and don't wonder why he just stands there not saying a word, not doing anything. He is not tan, olive, black, or some other skin-colored people I have seen in my home. He is pure, bright, white, with large, round eyes. He is not the Whitley Strieber type of alien with elliptical eyes. When I first heard that description, I thought someone had made it up. 
So it wasn't until later in his life, I guess, that he realized it was the ending part of an alien abduction and that he had just been brought back. So he, and he, he says that it's uh, funny that he would remember because most people don't remember. And he goes on to talk about it and being paralyzed and doll-like, shark-like, and he makes it very, very, very scary. So I'm wondering um, if there was something that happened that made him kind of go back and forth on this because I thought that uh, I thought he wanted to talk to them, you know. So thealienhunter.com if you want to go read his own stories, and I will link them. Fair enough. He's got a blog. He also claims that, um, did I see like millions are abducted every year or was it thousands? Yeah, he's, and he says that he's investigated more than 2,000 alien abduction, abduction cases in his 38-year career. And he had access to classified information, which he decided to share with the public. Uh, you know, the CIA angle, I think, definitely gives him some credence with some people. The hypnotic implantations do seem a little suspect. I could probably do a whole biography on this guy, but I'm just going to give you his website and I'm going to let you research him. How does that sound? There you have it. I think we're going to stop right there for this particular episode. Another little bit lighter episode where admittedly I didn't dive into some massive research and do a bunch of handwritten notes kind of doing extended versions of what used to be my mini pods. I thought those were pretty creepy. I figured anything I wrote down would end up sounding just like the websites anyway. And I think that giving a lot of shout outs and proper credit, I think we're good. All of these will be in my show notes. UFOinsight.com particularly, big shout out. And... If you want to know anything else about Mr. Gerald Sims, like I said, he's got his own website. He'll be glad to tell you. And he's got some books and everything else. And uh, anybody out there who is way into UFOlogy, ufology, I like that, ufology. You've probably heard of him, you know. Find me on Twitter, PodPinky. Instagram, Pinky underscore podcast. Patreon.com slash Pinky Square Press. I also have coffee, Ko-Fi, whatever you want to call it. Hey, buy me a drink, whatever. Just one shot, one time. Just one shot, one shot, a bottle of wine. Um, I also have PinkySquarePress.com because I do other things. And I think that will probably wrap up this first of the uh, one of my countdowns to Halloween because I love Halloween as a babies. I love this whole season. I'm pondering whether or not to do an episode on cults. A cult, one cult. It's just that so many people do cults. I had somebody suggest it to me a long time ago. Well, they suggested a specific one, and she agreed with me when I said to her, yeah, I don't want the heat from those people. I'm not even going to say who they are. Suffice it to say that there's been plenty done on them, probably far better than I could ever do anyway. And they usually get threats. People who do that usually get threats in check. You, you figure it out, okay? It's one of those um, quasi-accepted cults that some people don't like to call a cult, but we all know it's a cult. But anyway, I know you're listening out there, Janie Baby. Janie got a gun. Oh, no, that's not the one. Well, I didn't want to do Janie's crying. Anyway, my lady, I'm going to try to find... Some other freaky ass, weird, which sadly there are plenty of. But maybe instead of something everyone else has heard of or done something on, maybe I'll try to find something. Because the subject was cults, right? It didn't have to be a specific type of cult. It could be the cult of Dionysus. I mean, I'm drinking wine right now. Ding. Cheers. We'll see what I can come up with. If you've listened this far, you can find me and let me know on Twitter, PodPinky, if you think that's a good idea. And with that, I think that's me, Audi 5000. Oh, God, with the stupid, terrible, bad, not even joke jokes, too, right? Or is that a, that's not a pun. What the hell is it other than just bad? Okay, thanks for listening. Oh, and all hail Lady Lemba.
We love her. Bow.